This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So Michael has been a friend of mine for many, many years. He is a Jewish follower of Jesus, and he has given his life to bringing the gospel to Muslims. And um, I couldn't think of a better person to speak on this passage. So Father in heaven, thank you for Mike. Thank you for his ministry. But even more importantly, Lord, thank you for the life that he lives, for the testimony that he lives. Thank you for his example. Thank you that he's poured out his life uh, for his enemies. And thank you that... uh, He has answered your call and been obedient to that call over the years. Just pray that you'll speak to us through him. And again, Lord, we want to be encouraged, but even more so, Father, it's uh, our hope that all of us want to be challenged and uh, motivated by you, motivated by your Holy Spirit. We ask this again for your sake and the glorious kingdom. Uh, that we have through Jesus the Messiah, we pray. Amen. Thank you, David. Um, Introductions are always a little bit better than the real thing, but I'll try to do my best. I just returned um, a few days ago from Rome. It was my first visit. I'm at David's encouragement. He said you should go to Rome. Kind of uh, fits with what we're going to see right now. I was a bit overwhelmed by... Obviously, the, 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 the glory and the splendor and the, 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 just the bigness of it all. It looked like Istanbul West to me. And then I thought to myself, yeah, that's what it is. It's Istanbul West. It's Constantinople on the western side. But um, it's kind of the same theme that's going on in this Acts 11 uh, scripture. And that is basically, you know, can anything you know, sort of good come out of a place like this, you know, (laughs) that was what was coming to me. It was just so much of, you know, man's uh, testimony maybe to his own kingdoms and power and stuff. So it was a little bit overwhelming in that way. Um, My wife was going through one of the Vatican museums. She turned to me and she said, uh, where did they get all this stuff? (laughs) And I started scratching my head and I thought, you know, that's a good question. And then they, they answer the question as you go. Some of it they took, some of it they bought, um, some of it they discovered, uh, some of it was donated. And it kind of hit to me, I said, boy, this has to be one of the most, at at its time, was probably one of the wealthiest uh, nation states, whatever it was, you know, kingdoms in in the the world. So, um, yeah, so we just got back and uh, it was very... Obviously, enlightening trip, as, as you can imagine. That was my first time. How many is it your first time here in Israel? Okay, so quite a few. Okay, good. It's nice to see some old faces and uh, new faces as well. Um, so let's go to the scripture. You know, um, Acts 11 is really Acts 10, isn't it? It's Acts 10, it's Acts 11. They're together. This story, of, uh, this, uh, story that's kind of one of the most pivotal ones, really, in all of the scriptures, in a sense, is the reason why probably many people are here today. You know, the gospel goes out. The Holy Spirit is the evidence of what God is going to do among the nations. And this, this meeting 
that Peter and Cornelius have in Caesarea really is a turning point in history. And as I was preparing for this message, one thing that came to me as I was doing my, just my devotional time in Mark 13 yesterday was, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What happens in this incident in Caesarea, in Caesarea, changes history in a way that the cross changes history as well. This is, in a sense, the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit actually being poured out quite sovereignly on Gentiles. And from here on in, the whole trajectory of the narrative, both in Acts and throughout the New Covenant, changes completely. And so it's very important that we take careful note of what's happening here. This is not just a story. This is not just a narrative. In other words, a lot of Bible um, scholars and theologians argue over Acts. Is it narrative or is it formative? Is it simply a story or is it, does it form our faith from here on in? You know, in a sense, you know, it's narrative. Of course it's narrative because you don't have to go on a road to Damascus and get hit by a light to come to faith in Yeshua, do you? You can come to faith lots of different ways. So it's, it's, not, it's narrative in that way. But it's also formative. Why? Because the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family without anybody even touching him. First of all, it's just God's sovereign work. And then an angel comes out. In other words, all these things change because of God's sovereign intervention into the narrative, into history at this time. So let's just, before we get into the, the, the scripture itself, let's look at the context. Caesarea. What do we know about Caesarea? Caesarea was the capital of Judea at that time. And then comes Palestine a little later. And Cornelius himself is a centurion. What do we know about centurions? Well, we know from the word that he's a, he's a head of 100 Roman soldiers, but he's also part of a fairly large regiment. Where else do we see uh, a centurion in the scriptures? A very important place, actually. There's another centurion that's in the Synoptic Gospels. Builds the synagogue in Capernaum. He says, remember, this man deserves you to heal his servant because he has built our synagogue. So a centurion actually builds the synagogue in Capernaum. Okay? He's also referred to as what? This man is a centurion and he's a God-fearer. He's a devout God-fearer. There's two words here. I don't know. I wasn't looking so much at the English. I think it's devout is the word that's used. The God-fearers were a very interesting group. Okay? It's not just an adjective. It's actually a gerund. It's a noun. It's actually a group of people who attached themselves to the Jewish community. They were found all over the Mediterranean. Everywhere where the Jews were dispersed around the Mediterranean region, there were God-fears. Okay, in fact, as we read through the narrative of Acts, we have this group that kind of comes up over and over again. Paul goes into the synagogue, he preaches to the Jews, but there are also God-fears there. God-fears were Gentiles who didn't actually convert fully to Judaism. Most of the time, they were men. Why? Because the final step of conversion in Jewish faith for men is a little bit more painful than it is for women. <laughs> and so they weren't really ready to take that final step, so they attached themselves to the community. But why did they attach themselves to the community? And why was it that there were so many God-fearers all around the Mediterranean? It's important to remember that even in the time of Yeshua, 
There are more Jews living outside of Eretz Yisrael, of the land of Israel, of Judea at the time of Palestine, than there was living inside. So there was a large dispersion all around the Mediterranean into uh, Mesopotamia, as far as Iran, west, around the, even in even North Africa and Egypt. There were Jews all over the Mediterranean, more so than there were in Israel. And during the Hellenistic period, during the Greek empires, well, actually starting with the Medo-Persian empire, when the Jews were allowed to return to the land of Israel, all over the Mediterranean, they're given freedom of religion. Now, this might sound a little bit, you know, unimportant or irrelevant to you right now because most of you come from areas of the world maybe where you have freedom of religion. But at that time, it was no small thing for the Jews in the dispersion to be given freedom to exercise their faith, to collect funds, to send money different places. They even had so much freedom that they could exercise corporal punishment on their community members. How do we know that? We know that because even in the time of the whole episode of the trial and the crucifixion of Yeshua, they were able to whip or exercise corporal punishment, not kill somebody, that's capital punishment, but they were able to exercise corporal punishment and that happens to Paul even. He's out there, he's preaching the gospel and what does he say? He says in 2 uh, Corinthians, Corinthians 11.22 that he's, he's, he's whipped Five times, 40 lashes minus one. Okay, do the math. His 90, he has 195 scars on his back given to him by Jews. We won't get into that, but this is, that's a very interesting part of the whole scripture that he maintains this love and passion for his own people, even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles following this particular sort of episode right here. But they had extreme freedom in their communities, in the dispersion around, okay? And when people saw the faith of these Jewish communities spread out around the nations, especially Romans and Greeks, they were very attracted by their discipline, by their faith. It was actually a stark contrast, obviously, because Greeks and Romans believed in many gods, and the Jews oftentimes got criticized because they believed in a God that you couldn't see. And so it was, a bit un- it was a bit unusual for these Greeks and Romans, but oftentimes they saw the discipline and how these communities did one thing more than anything else, how they took care of their own members. This was a testimony. John 13, 31 to 35. They'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It was how the Jewish communities in the dispersion cared for their own communities that oftentimes, both their discipline and their love, attracted people into the communities. But they oftentimes didn't take that final step and so they were referred to as God-fears. Now, Cornelius himself is also referred to as a Hasid. And I'm not sure that, I, I, I don't know where David is right now, David's more of a, a scholar on Jewish history, but this word Hasid in the Hebrew that's used, translated devout, which seems to me again an adjective, it's actually not an adjective, it's a noun, okay? He's not just a devout, God-fearing Roman. He's a chassid, he is a, um, he's a yirei adonai, he's a, he's a person of extreme, extreme noteworthiness to the community around. Now, there were a lot of Jews living in Caesarea. We actually have 
a lot in Acts about Caesarea, which is kind of interesting because how, here it is, the Roman capital, almost a place you could see at that time, could anything good come out of Caesarea? That was where the Roman capital was. That was the people who were oppressing the Jews. That, that stood for everything against our independence as a nation after the Maccabean period, which was before that. And so he's referred to as someone in this community, a soldier who's a God-fearer, but he's also a Hasid. Now the word Hasid, it was used later in the medieval times to refer to a movement of Jews, but it first comes about in the second century BCE, and it referred to those who were strict, extremely strict in their ritual observance to the law, but also they were noteworthy because of their love for God and their love for one another. Because it comes from the word chesed in Hebrew, which is loving kindness. So this guy was a man of, of, of very uniqueness and he was probably known far and wide, both in the Roman world and in the Jewish world and the Jewish community and Caesarea. Okay, so he's no small figure. He's quite an important figure. I want you to catch this because what happens as a result of this visit from Peter and the Holy Spirit falling is gonna, is gonna create some attention. And that's how we get to this part. But one other thing about this. When we look at, let's just go to the, let's just go to Acts 10 and read those first five verses together. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm using a, um, a Hebrew English Bible that I'm not, I don't think it's the New King, it used to be the New King James Version. Now it's, I think it's a, they switched it over to the, to another version, which is the uh, New American Standard. So it might not follow the same words in there, but I just want to read it. It said, now there was a, verse, starting with verse one. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort or the Italian regiment, a devout man who feared God. Okay, so we got two adjectives where they should be nouns. Sorry about that, but just bear with me here. He's a Hasid and he's a Yireh Adonai, Yireh Elohim. He's a God-fearer. A specific group, okay? And, okay, so let's read some. A devout man, one who feared God and with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Okay, so we've got a couple different distinctions about him. One, he's a man of prayer. Two, he's a man who's giving. He's a generous man, okay? Three, not only is he following God, but his whole household is involved in this. Now, for many of you who know that are, you know, sort of my age and your kids have grown up and everything, it's no small thing to raise a, a family and have them follow the Lord after you. It's a, it can actually be a, a deterrent. I came to faith in a family that wasn't believers. It's actually easier that way. Because if you are, it's almost like sending a child to a Christian school. It can be a disaster, okay? Because the, the words have to line up with the example. And the same way in the family, because if the example and the words don't go together, they're going to leave the faith very quickly. Because it's not easy as well to grow up in a family of faith when everybody's against it too. So the example and the words have to get together. So obviously this was a man of authority in that his words and his life matched it and his children saw it and they followed. Now, I'm not saying that that is a, uh, how shall I say, a formula that, that will be followed every time. No, there's gonna be people that live the word, speak the word, their life lines up and their children have free choice not to follow it. But most of the time it's not gonna happen 
if the, if the parents are not walking out what they're preaching. In other words, that's one of the main sins that Yeshua is condemning throughout the, the Gospels is hypocrisy. When the message and the lifestyle don't line up. So when it's there, there's tremendous authority. That's why Yeshua was a man, was a rabbi who taught with authority. Because his life and his message went together. And when the life and the message go together, there is authority. There is authority there. And when there's authority, people say, that's genuineness, that's authentic, and I'm willing to follow that. And that's why they followed him. That's why they left everything and they followed him. That's why we follow him, because his words and his life lined up together. That's what makes him different from all the other teachers. That's why he's an expert on the human heart. Because we see what he says is what he did and what he did is what he said. And so this was a man that in some ways followed that example. It was the same thing and his children followed him. So it says about the ninth hour, he prays to God continually. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. A man committed to prayer. So he gave, okay, he was an example of what he lived and he was a man of prayer. He even got two of those three out of those Matthew 6 Sermon on the Mount disciplines. He got them right. He got them right. We don't know about his fasting life. That's in secret. But the other things we know. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount talks a lot about the importance of generosity in a believer's life. In fact, this word that he's called a tzaddik sometimes even, you know, his, his righteousness, it's going to come out a little bit later in Hebrew. That is connected, tzaddik or tzedakah, those words are connected in Hebrew. Your righteousness is bared out by what you give. In other words, you know that someone is righteous because of how they handle their finances. And it reflects God's way. God is generous. And so that we as a community are commanded to be generous. And he's not only generous to God, he's generous with what? He's giving alms to the Jewish people, to those that are poor around him. He's honoring those whom the faith that now he's a part of came through. And this is a very godly thing and it gets God's attention. Are you following me here? Okay, so let's go back to the, the text in Acts 10. About the ninth hour of the day, most likely this was probably about six o'clock at night, or sorry, maybe even three in the afternoon. Maybe he was an extra. He was going in the afternoon prayers as well. Clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. I actually didn't say it like that. He said, Cornelius! <laughs> and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed. You can imagine. He's alarmed. You know, he's having a vision. All of a sudden, this angel shows up and shouts his name. There's an exclamation point here. Okay? Sorry, he's not so British here. He yells his name, Cornelius! And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This got God's attention. His life, his prayers, his giving, they attracted the attention of God and God sends an angel. I mean, when I see this, I, I love this thing where there's this and that going on, don't you? You do, because sometimes, you know, we don't know. We pray and we leave it with God and we know, okay, well, maybe he'll probably do something. I won't know about it, but... 
when you see this up and down thing going on, he prays and God sends an angel. It's exciting. God's breaking in here. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And so we get the rest of the story here. He goes, he sends, Peter sees a vision. And what's important to me, or what's noteworthy, should be noteworthy to us, is that this story gets repeated twice. This story gets repeated twice. In case we miss it the first time, Luke is going to write it down again for us. And you know, whenever anything appears twice, we better take attention of it. We better take note. Now, let's just spend a little bit of time. I want to spend a little bit of time about Peter in a way. And I think you, they've also gone before this and there's been some things about um, Peter that was shared. I think you actually in the lectionary go through the speech. So I won't really speak too much about the speech. But I, will, I do want to say a couple things about the dream that he has. So he has a dream. He's on the roof. The sheet comes down twice, right? He sees these animals and, Peter, and God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, anything, if you know anything about when God's communicating things to the Jewish people, he has to get a little extreme so that we listen, okay? It's not, not always we're going to hear it the first time. He's got to get extreme. And in this case, it's kind of extreme. Why? Because this is going against the law. In a way, in Peter's mind, it's going against the law. In other words, in the, what he's seen in the dream. But the point isn't the food. The animals are to get his attention. What's the point of the dream? Men and women. Others that are not Jewish. God's purpose to bring this blessing of Abraham to all the nations. It's not about food. Don't miss this. Don't miss this because in a way, it's not, the point isn't food and what you eat and what you don't eat. The point is people. The point is for him to step into a place where he would say God could never work with people that God has called cursed, that they're now going to be blessed. So he, we know in Acts 10, Peter goes, he, he, he tells him, he says, listen, I shouldn't be here. I just want to let you know. <laughs> just in, in case somebody asks you, what am I as a Jew doing here? You can tell them I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm here. You know what I mean? He's kind of saying, okay, he's kind of covering all his bases because he knows that this could get out. And, you know, they're trying to watch their steps here. Why? Because they're part of a new cult kind of thing. They're a new, it's called the way. And, you know, it's creating some opposition. Obviously, their leader's been crucified. They're having to watch their steps here. And he walks in here and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family without them even touching anybody. Now, what's interesting to me about all this is that there are lots of places in Acts where Peter is commanded, even when Philip goes into Samaria in Acts 8. By the way, Philip, what, what does Philip do? The story of Philip. Philip goes to Samaria, right? He preaches. He goes down to the road to Gaza. He preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. He disappears. He finds himself in another city. And then he ends up in Caesarea. I don't know if you caught this. Philip ends up his ministry in Caesarea and he stays in. Check it out, Acts 8. Philip ends his ministry. So f most likely the church 
or the ecclesia, the new community that starts in Caesarea is Philip's community. Okay? It's Philip's community. So we know that from Acts 8 that Philip actually ends his ministry after his time with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 and he ends up in Caesarea. And he's actually in Caesarea when Paul travels back to Jerusalem. Okay? He meets him again. He's got four daughters that prophesy. That's Philip. So Philip's actually started this ecclesia, this community, this new covenant community in Caesarea. Now I don't know how much, we don't know if there's been any contact yet. We don't know if this is chronological, if Philip's had any contact with anybody. But obviously God wants to do something in Caesarea. We would say no, that's outside of his realm. He doesn't work among Romans and pagans. And yet he decides, I'm going there, I'm going to start something there. And it's really around, Caesarea, around Cornel, this event with Cornelius, which is very, very interesting. So Caesarea comes out. What else happens in Caesarea? Paul comes back there. Paul spends an enormous, an enormous amount of time there as a witness to the kings there at the, towards the end of his life. So let's go to Acts 11. With all that said and the context, let's go to Acts 11. And... Uh, we get into the next uh, section of the scripture. So the, this is the story. I guess you could say this is the story part two. Because he gets, he, they find out, and this is what I found interesting. Sometimes when you're reading your devotions or you're reading the scriptures, you kind of, you just kind of go through it. But when you stop for a second and you look at, wait a minute here, what's going on? Now the apostles, I'm sorry, I'm reading from verse one. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. This got out. This got out. Now check this out. The apostles, the believers all over Judea heard what happened in Cornelius' house. This made news. Everybody knew about it. People knew what is going on, what is happening it was known. And they called Peter up to Jerusalem. We want you to come here. We've got an issue with you. They take issue. They start an argument. What are you doing going into the house of Gentiles and pagans? What's going on here? Peter's going, okay, wait a minute. Just wait a minute. Let's slow down here. But obviously, look at this was heard throughout Judea. The word got out all over the region of what happened in Cornelius' house. This just wasn't a scripture that we read and, you know, it's now published everywhere. No, this was news at that time there too. This shook the nation. So here he is. Peter starts to make his defense. It's interesting how he does this. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate, um, oh, sorry, I went backwards. I'm going this way. You went into men, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence, saying, okay, and then he goes back and he explains the story. Okay, so I just want to make a couple comments here. So, why is it a big deal that he's eating with them? Okay, now, if you don't, if you're not from the Mediterranean region, let me just tell you, eating is everything. <laughs> I didn't know this until I actually married someone in this region. And um, we would be sitting together uh, and then uh, her relatives would call. She's from, uh, actually she's from Istanbul. 
And uh, they'd get on the phone and they'd talk all around the world. And, and instead of saying, what did you do today? What's the weather like? What's the news? No, no, no. They would talk about what did they eat? How they cooked it? Who came? What was the recipe? What spice? I mean, I was like, what? You're calling across the world. What are you talking about? What are you eating for? And, but yet that, we are obsessed in the Mediterranean about food. It's like next to religion. I don't know if there's a saying, but food is like next to religion. So what you eat about is very important. It's part of our, it's part of our life and how we do everything. We were in Italy. I said, well, he wasn't so into all the statues, but boy, when the Italians sat down to eat, it was like a religion. You know, you have one course, two course, three course, this, that, how you do it, who you sit with. It's a big thing. And if you look at the scriptures, both for Jews and for many of the other faith communities around the Middle East, eating is a very, very important event. In fact, it's much, much more wrapped up around the scriptures than a lot of other things. In other words, when the Holy Spirit falls in Acts 2, they're getting the disciples teaching, they're reading the word of God, they're praying together, and they're eating. Why is that in there? Because it's important in our faith who we eat with. Eating is important. We had, obviously there's a whole issue of the kosher laws and idolatry and everything like that. But God, even in his, in the scriptures, in the stories, in the parables, it's all about feasts, it's all about weddings, it's all about eating together. One of my favorite stories by, um, I, I've spent a lot of time working among Turks and Kurds. One of my favorite stories is this Kurdish guy told me, he says, I don't know Arabic. I can't read the Quran so well. You know, I'm very, he's very, my friend was telling me, this guy's a very devout Muslim. He says, but this is my religion. And this Kurdish guy from southeastern Turkey tells me a story. Here's the story. So Ibrahim, Abraham, Ibrahim is sitting at his tent one day. And a man comes up to him and says, you know, I was on a journey and Ibrahim comes up to his tent. He says, uh, he says, come into my tent. Let's eat together. And the man says, thank you very much. He, you know, Middle Eastern hospitality. He welcomes them in. They're going to start to eat. He says, no, but before we eat, we must wash. And the man says, no. He says, I, I don't wash. He says, no, we must wash. We're going to eat. We must wash first. Hands, you know, everything. He says, no, I, I, I don't wash. And the man says, well, if we don't wash, then you can't eat with, uh, Abraham says, you can't eat with me. And the man says, he's offended. He goes, okay, I won't eat with you. And he leaves. Ibrahim is sitting in his tent and the angel comes to him and says, Ibrahim, do you know what? I fed this man for 40 years and he came to your tent and you refused him food. He says, oh no. What should I do? He repents. He goes, oh God, I'm so sorry, God. So he gets out of his tent. He runs down the road. He gets, captures, catches the guy and says, you must come back to my tent. And he says, no, I won't come back. You offended me. <laughs> he says, no, you must come back and eat. He says, well, I'll come back and eat on one condition. You carry me on your back all the way to your tent. Now, this is a very Middle Eastern idea. We actually do this oftentimes. You know, if you really love somebody, you put them on your back, you carry them. So Ibrahim says, okay, I'll carry you on my back all the way to the tent. So he puts him on his back. He carries him all the way to the tent. They get to the tent. Ibrahim prepares the food. He says, okay, now we must eat. And the man says, no, we must wash first. <laughs> This is the very Middle Eastern story, but it's very much part of this gospel story, isn't it? Your disciples are eating without washing their hands. This is haram. This is not right. You need, they need to repent. They need to do it. So this, this whole issue of how we eat and everything is very, very important. So you can see it. They're coming here. You went into this tent and you were going to eat with them. He says, okay, hold on here. 
It is a very, very important thing. In fact, it's so important that all Jewish holidays can almost be summed up in a very simple adage that we repeat. Somebody attacked us, we won, let's eat. (laughs) So eating is a big part of our faith and who we are. So anyway, he goes through the whole story and uh, we won't go into the, the whole line of events, but the point of the story is not food. It's getting Peter's attention about God's value for those that are not part of his particular group. Now, this is sometimes often hard for us to understand. And I just want to share a few points in closing about all this, because this is really where the story kind of finds its fulfillment. When God can't use us willingly, he puts us in a place and he acts sovereignly, doesn't he? He he sticks us in a place and he makes us watch something that we necessarily wouldn't do by our choosing. And this is what he has to do by Peter. So this is the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. But it's more than this. It's a revelation of the promise of God. John baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's part of what's going on is here. Peter makes a very interesting statement here at the end of Acts 11. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, how many of you know, most of the time, we are the ones that are standing in God's way. We're the ones that get in the way of God more than anyone else. And so sometimes he has to stick us there so that he can act sovereignly and we can open our eyes. And that's God's grace, isn't it? It's God's grace when he acts sovereignly and sticks us in the place and says, I didn't see this, but this is God. Why? Because it enlarges our view of God. God is bigger than my little box of how he has to work. And excuse me, this is good news. This is great news. God is much bigger than my box. I remember a great story that has to do with this building and this whole idea that David told me one time. There was a guy that used to sit back there in the back, right where the usher is, and people would come in, you know, you come in, you story, and he would have to share the gospel with every single person that came in, so much so that he started irritating everybody. Well, you might think from your tradition, well, that's okay if he's irritating everybody, but it got to the point where, you know, people just couldn't come in here because they were afraid of him. And so finally, David said to him, he said, listen, I'll call him John. He said, John, if they want to come in and talk about falafels, let them talk about falafels with them. You don't have to share the gospel with everybody that comes in. He said, but this might be their only chance. To which David replied very wisely. He said, well, then, John, your view of God is pretty small. Look, we're not the only answer that God has. He is sovereign. He can use lots of different things to get his message across. He wants us to not, he wants us to walk in fellowship in the, in the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Peter does this. But God has to speak pretty strongly to get him to do it. Because oftentimes, we're the ones that are in the way. We're the ones that are in the way. Instead of just on the way. <laughs> it's better to be on the way than in the way. <laughs> Finally, and this is the thing that really kind of uh, made me excited when I was reading this, is the very end. Let's just read this together. I don't know what version it has, but verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down. 
<laughs> takes a lot to get Jews to be quiet. <laughs> it takes a lot. In fact, do you want to make a relationship with a Jew? Just let him talk. Just ask them for information. Get lost. Say, hey, how do I get there? You'll get 10 people telling you how to get there. Because we have so much information, we don't know what to do with it. So here he goes. He says, they, after this, they quieted down. And they said, God, well then, I guess God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Amen. Amen. You know what? That's our, I remember as a young believer, and I, when I read this even, to, it came back to me again. Repentance is a gift from God. We might think that we do it in our own strength, but ultimately repentance is a gift from God that leads to life. And you know what? We do it all the days of our lives. We are always repenting and we're always praising, aren't we? We should be repenting from the end of, until the end of our days because the more we repent, the more we get God. And the more we get God, the more we get life. And so this issue of repenting that leads to life is part of our ongoing testimony, isn't it, as believers? God has granted us repentance that leads to life. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word today. We thank you for this amazing story that in a way, somewhat, almost like the cross changed human history. Lord, the, the events that take place from Jaffa to Caesarea that open up the, the blessing of Abraham to the nations make history. And Lord, we thank you that we would do well in a way, as the scripture says, to pay closer attention to these things. Lord, we ask that in this season between Passover and um, Pentecost, that we would wait before you, not only for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be renewed in our lives, but for repentance that would be granted, that would lead us more into life, God. That we would, that Lord, you would change our thinking, <laughs> literally, that we would go, we would change in our thinking, that we would repent and that that would bring new life into our lives as you've called us, Lord, to walk in that abundant life. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.